Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Okay, everybody. This is Dr. Lawrence Simon. The show, as always, are stories we live by. And tonight, uh, the show will be shared with me uh, with a good friend and a wise colleague, Dr. Lewis Wynn, and anybody who wants to go back into our archives, uh, we did a show together where we interviewed uh, Dr. Thomas Zass, sometimes before he uh, passed away. And that show uh, still uh, gets a lot of attention, uh, people going there all the time. And so, uh, Lou, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. And anybody who would like to join the conversation, you call at 646-716-7756. So let me introduce uh, the show and what set me off to do another show on post-traumatic stress disorder, the so-called diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I've done this before, probably more than once, uh, but I got uh, a new client uh, I work in nursing homes. Um, I'm retired except for two days a week. I work in these three nursing homes. And one of them really gives me some very interesting people to work with. And last week I was given a man in his 60s who was dying of cancer, uh, whose uh, back is against the wall, as they would say. And we started to talk, uh, and he was lamenting and weeping over the fact that he believed uh, that he had destroyed his life. And we began to discuss this, this self-destruction, and it turned out he was a Vietnam vet. And over the years, I've worked with a law, fairly large number of Vietnamese vets, particularly uh, in the late 70s, uh, when a lot of them came to the mental health clinic that I worked at at Flushing Hospital. And I immediately took to this individual. Um, there was something very real about him, and his suffering is very great, uh, particularly as he's dying of cancer. There's really nothing that can be done. Probably in the next few weeks, he will uh, be put in hospice where he'll be made comfortable, uh, which is really what the medical side of this will be. And I made a commitment to him that I will continue to work with him until his passing because he probably will stay in the nursing home. He has no other place to go. And the story is so similar to so many other uh, individuals who come back from war. Somehow we expect that when people go through uh, a variety of experiences that most of us haven't gone through and would never want to go through, that they can rejoin their lives as if they were what they were before they left. Uh, I've talked about this many times. And when they don't, the uh, mental health industry, uh, led by the psychiatric uh, and drug industry, 
suggest that they are, have an illness, a sickness, a disorder. Uh, they basically have given up on the idea of a true sickness, but they call it a disorder. And then uh, they need to be treated. And more and more, the treatment is going to be drugs. And I understand, I think it's in October, I have to start using the DSM-5. Do you know anything about that, Lou? Well, I haven't heard an actual date yet, but that sounds, that sounds reasonable. But no one has told me in writing that as of a given date, we switch to DSM-5. Yeah, well, we have to do, I think it's October. Uh, the DSM-5 is infinitely worse than the DSM-4. It is literally written by the drug companies. There is no psychiatry any longer. They're not psychiatrists. They are um, they're, they're drug pushers, basically. They call themselves uh, psychotropic drug uh, I forget the name of it, but they, they don't call themselves psychiatrists anymore. They're basically, and anyway, um, uh, before we leave, I have to give you a book to read called The Book of Woe and the Death of Psychiatry by a young fellow named Epstein. I don't know if I sent you that uh, email. Yes. Fabulous, fabulous book. Yes, I think so. Written yeah. by yeah. a young man who uh, writes very well, and he's a psychologist in practice and also a professional writer who was friends with Alan Francis, who did the DSM-4. And Francis refers to psychiatry in his interviews with uh, Epstein as basically a bullshit, that we should never have made or reified the diagnosis and made them pretend to be real medical diagnoses. Uh, incredible book. Uh, but we'll have to do the DSM-5, and I have to hold my nose every time I think about doing that. But anyway, to go back to this man that I'm working with, um, like so many others, he came back from the war, and he was not the person who left. As a young man, he joined the Army. Um, he came from the kind of a tradition uh, that was uh, military-oriented. And when he joined the regular army, he then moved to special forces, where he tells me he was really taught to be a killing machine. And he did his job well. And um, he hasn't yet told me, he really has trouble putting into words, the number of people he killed and the number of people for whom he shared the war, his fellow soldiers who were killed. Uh, but when he came home, he was not the person who left. Uh, he went a gung-ho young man. He was going to be a hero. He was going to be a soldier. Uh, he was going to save the Western world. He was going to defeat communism um, in that particularly ugly war in Vietnam, where we now know that the uh, incident that ramped up the war, the attack of our, one of our ships in the Gulf of Tonkin never actually took place. It was all a fraud. Um, and he displayed the following symptoms. And I'm going to read some of the symptoms of somebody who was diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder. And a little history on this. In World War II, uh, you had uh, combat neurosis. You had war neurosis. The same symptoms. In World War I, it was shell shock. And interestingly, prior to World War I, it would have been called cowardice. 
uh, and treason. Anybody who could speak against the war, uh, who could speak against uh, the, the goals of their country in a particular war, um, uh, and couldn't fight anymore because of emotional responses to the war, was usually uh, found guilty of treason and cowardice and killed. In World War I, it became a kind of a sickness, and it's interesting side on this. Sigmund Freud was at the front uh, as a doctor treating shell shock patients. And what they would do is put a strong electric current through the brain of the individual, not our more gentle version of uh, shock therapy, uh, but real current. And after a couple of these uh, so-called treatments, the individual said, okay, give me my gun, I'll go back to the front, uh, and I'll die there because I'd rather do that than endure the treatments. It was in World War II uh, that it became a real neurosis, and anybody who has seen the wonderful movie Patton, there is a scene uh, where the uh, Patton uh, goes through the uh, a hospital unit of uh, wounded uh, soldiers, wounded warriors, and uh, when he meets a young man who was emotionally disabled and couldn't fight anymore, he smacks him across the face. And this led to uh, all kinds of trouble for Patton, because at this point he could not call this young man a coward. All he could say was that he was mentally disturbed. And as having a sickness, which I'll describe again the symptoms in a moment, you're not responsible for what you do. And therefore, you need treatment and not any kind of uh, rehabilitation back to being a soldier. And again, the moral issues here, we could discuss, they pile up large and deep. But PTSD, and I'll refer to it that way because that's how it's done, is feeling upset by things that remind you of what happened. Nightmares and flashbacks, emotionally cut off from others. Uh, I sort of have to jump in. Uh, at this point, you're cut off from others because you've experienced something they haven't. It's hard to describe, very hard to talk about uh, killing and, and, and murder and mayhem. Uh, but they don't want to hear it. Uh, very few people want to listen to these horrors. Uh, they want you back the way that you were, a good citizen rallying the troops or getting prepared for the next war. Feeling numb, a loss of interest in things, feelings of depression, thinking you're in danger, anxiety, difficulty sleeping, trouble concentrating, and a hard time uh, relating with others. Now, first of all, Lou, you with me? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing medical on this list. Nothing biologically wrong. It's behavior. Right? And so the young man that I'm working, the young man, I don't know why I think of him as young. He's in his 60s and he's on Social Security, uh, on Medicare. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to see him, tells me uh, about all of these feelings he had. And the fact that the way he dealt with them was through drugs. Uh, he became belligerent. He fought with people. So that there's a lot of undesirable behavior from the point of view of those who lived with him and from the point of view of society. But the fact was, 
there's no biological basis for diagnosing him as having a sickness. And to use the word my friend Lou uses, invidious, I always love that word. Uh, this is one of the more pernicious and invidious diagnoses because what we do is we say, this is not a man transformed by his experiences. Transformed. This is a man who's sick. You want to add to this, Lou? Yeah, well, I wanted to, I want to clarify something. When you watch these documentaries, particularly of World War I, I've seen recently, they'll show you pictures of men who... Uh, seem to be out of control of their bodies. They're they're shaking all over. They're spasmodic. They're they're, they're just and it, and it looks truly awful. But that's not what we're talking about when we when we are talking about uh, so-called PTSD. These men, in my opinion, uh, have been shelled for so long. They've been they've been under shell fire and explosions for days, if not weeks. And their inner ears have probably been destroyed, and heaven knows there may be some uh, some actual cortical yeah. injury. But we're not right. talking about those guys. That that is a medical issue. Uh, it's a yes, medical I agree with you. Issue, but we're, yeah, we're not talking about that. Okay. So yeah. um, now the question is. Um, why do we medicalize this? You see, I think that. Uh, all psychiatric diagnoses have a political side. They have a social side. We do this for a variety of reasons. And when I start to work with this young, this young man, I keep saying young man because he seems so much younger than me, but he's not. When I worked with the soldiers that returned from Vietnam, um, and over the years I've had some who came back from Iraq, uh, very, very similar they come back with a variety of emotions. One is, and, and I want to set this up properly, when we prepare, when any country, and by the way, I'm not now just talking about the United States. Uh, no country that I'm aware of goes to war without claiming that God is on their side and that they're fighting something important and worthwhile, if not holy. I um, mean, we're focusing now on all of these characters in the Mideast, ISIS and ISIL, um, uh, terrible, terrible activity on their sides. But they're playing for God. God really wants them to do this so that every army idealizes itself and dehumanizes its enemies or those who have been claimed to be their enemies. The yeah, enemy... The that's the important part. You have to demonize yeah. and dehumanize. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because it's when it you, is... Yeah. Go ahead. Go when say you, it, Lou. When, yeah. When you, when, you, uh, when you kill somebody, close up, personal, face-to-face, -face, something happens to you. It's, yes. Uh, it, it's, and and we, we minimize that. We, either we minimize it by dehumanizing the person who's being killed, or in some other way... Uh, the Hollywood version, of course, is that you can you can kill people without it having any long term emotional and, and impact right. on you. Yeah, yeah. without any consequence. I, I, I love I, yeah. one of the shows I love to watch are the old um, Gunsmoke shows with Matt Dillon. Yeah, yeah. I love yeah, yeah. that show. Yeah. And every episode he kills somebody and he doesn't blink, and he right. kills them facing them right on. Over the last 
when I was particularly in practice in the 70s and the 80s, um, I had a number of cops who had been referred to me who had killed somebody. And in every case, the officer had shot somebody and under the circumstances were found to be a justifiable homicide. They killed a bad guy. They protected themselves. They protected somebody else. But none of them could live with this. None of them could swallow this because at the moment they killed somebody, whatever dehumanization had taken place, and cops are unlike soldiers, they're not trained to be killing machines. You know, they have to serve and protect. They're really not given the same kind of training. Um, whenever they killed somebody, they couldn't be the same because it was a human being. And Lou, I really do believe one of the most profound experiences somebody could ever have is to kill another person and have the dehumanization fail and realizes they ended a human life. You agree? Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And and that this person had a mother, a father, brothers, sisters, wives, children. This is not a solitary person you've killed. Yes. It's, it's you damage the whole family, and, and a whole family. You're not allowed. Yeah, you don't. And, and you're not allowed to think that. You must not think about that because if you do, yes. you won't do it. And so every one of the soldiers that I've worked with, and this man too, became the perfect killer. He was taught a hundred ways to kill, and he killed to protect himself, and he killed to protect his fellow, his buddies, but he killed other human beings and he came back saying of himself, I am a killer. And he couldn't redeem himself. There's guilt, there's rage. And we don't want to hear that because otherwise it becomes very, very difficult to prepare the next group of gung-ho young men on whatever side they are to march off for God and country and do the same mayhem over and over and over again. And the reason I hate this diagnosis the most is I hate being a part of that. Well, there's another reason, Larry, that I, I hate it, and that is for me, uh, all so-called mental illness is post-traumatic. Trauma uh, we're, we're all traumatized, and we all, uh, in one way or another, Tom Sass used to say this, particularly when you're a child, you get traumatized. And the, the question is, how do you deal with it? But when you create right. a diagnosis, when you create a diagnosis called PTSD, that somehow removes the notion of trauma from the other excuses we have to label people. And that's right. my objection to it. Right. And it cuts you off from recognizing who you victimized and who's victimized you. Because the, 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 so much of psychology and psychiatry, uh, independently of the, of the diagnosis system, says the problem is not between you and the world, between you and the other people in your life. It's within you. You're sick. You're not responsible and something happened, and you're sick. And we're going to give you some counseling so you can go back and smile again at the world. And we're going to especially, increasingly now, we're going to give you 
the pharmacologist's best brew so that if you've been taking Coke and pot, we'll give you something better that we can make a profit on. And you shouldn't take all those bad illegal drugs. You should take out the legal ones. And so it walls off the individual from being able to even say to him or herself, this is what I did that I feel shamed and guilty of. This is what was done to me that I despise and hate. Nothing gets said. Nothing gets said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lou? Yes. Yeah. Uh, what do we do about this, Lou? Have well, you been working <laughs> with that? I think you sent me yeah, an oh, email. Yeah, yeah, Tell me absolutely. about it. You sent me an well, email. Also, that, that, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> Better, I, say, uh, I, I deal with, with, with so-called PTSD at, at two levels. One is the veterans, of course. And, of course, the way we treat veterans is a shame and a disgrace. Um, yes. Oh, that's another thing. So go ahead. Yeah. Few, I got so so few veterans referred to me. Uh, so I just wonder what's happening to all of those other guys and women uh, who have terrible traumatic uh, pasts now uh, and who are not getting help. And it's not that they're not getting help from me. They're not getting help from anybody. I also right. I also deal with post-traumatic stress in women. I had a woman in my office yesterday who was sexually traumatized in the most hideous way. Uh, I'm not going to describe it over the air. Uh, and, and she is a mess. And this was 20 years ago, mind you. This wasn't yesterday. Right. 20 years ago, she lives with well, it. Well, why can't she just today. suck it up and get on with it? Because that's what these guys are being told, in effect. Yeah, right. This get particular patient of mine yeah. said... Yeah. When he came back from the, he went to the VA, and the yeah, doctor yeah. wrote a script for him, and he didn't literally didn't want to hear anything he had to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to go back to the woman. Well, and again, that's only one of of a hundred cases I can think off the top of my head. I just, it just, we we deal with this all the time. But but my agenda, as you know, Larry, is that. Uh, uh, and I, I met that I had lunch yesterday with a very dear friend of mine, a psychiatrist who was about my age, just retired, went out of practice. And he's the old type of psychiatrist, Larry. You will remember them, uh, where uh, medication is the last resort, not the first. Last resort, because they were good therapists. Yeah, yeah. And he said to me, he said, um, uh, I, my, my expression is we psychologists in particular. And he jumped in. He said, no, psychiatry, too. We made a Faustian bargain. We yes. were told back in the middle, middle to late 60s that if you, if you uh, call yourselves, you call yourselves doctors anyway because you're PhDs, that if you'll behave like physicians, if you will support the notion of medication, if you will diagnose clients, uh, then we, Medicaid will pay you and you'll, and you'll become rich. Um, in fact, my friend said to me, he said, you know, when I was a psychiatrist back in the 70s, Diagnosis was not an issue. Somebody came in, we discussed what the problems were, um, we helped them as best we could. We might even write a prescription for them. But diagnosis only became important when the insurance companies got involved because that's what they pay for. They pay for the treatment of a diagnosis, not for symptoms, not for problems. Right. Problems in living uh, are out. Symptoms are in. Um, And... and 
I see, you know, the whole field, I see the field literally dying. Uh, this, by the way, this Epstein book, uh, the book of woe, uh, which the subtitle is uh, Psychiat- The Death of Psychiatry, DSM-5 and the Death of Psychiatry, uh, really excellent. Um, Francis, who wrote four, he was the head of writing four, is now persona non grata. All of the people who wrote DSM-4 no longer have a job. They are not even talked to by the people who wrote five. And all of the people who wrote DSM-5, and you know, it's not a, a Roman numeral, it's five. Because yeah. six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and 100 are on the way. They're going to constantly re-up these, get, get it more and more diagnoses, literally uh, working hand in glove with the... Uh, the the, uh, the 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 big pharma the, the the pharmaceutical companies and basically the advertising people more than anybody else. Well, they want, um, they want the entire population to be diagnosable in some way. They yes. rejoice when people say, uh, "Do you know that twenty two percent or twenty eight percent? Pick your number of, of all Americans are mentally ill at some time in their lives." Right. Now this is right. this is bullshit. It's bullshit because the whole idea of mental illness is bullshit. But the, but the big pharma loves it because big pharma is no longer of any value, or I say of limited value, outside the field of of mental health. They've already they've already developed all of the uh, pharmaceuticals that we need for diabetes and heart problems and upper respiratory. Yeah, they don't have any blockbuster drugs. And this is what. Yeah, they, well, they, now they're come, Now you you listen to these drugs. I'll give you an example. Warfarin is the is the treatment of choice for people who have circulatory issues and blood clots and things like that. But but that's not good enough. Uh, the, the now there's an advertisement that says if you're on warfarin, uh, uh, we've got something even better for you. It doesn't work any better, mind you. It just you 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 only have to check your your blood. Uh, less often and so on. However, we got right. all these side effects, which we'll whip through real quickly. And there are any number of drugs now that are being brought out as substitutes for perfectly adequate drugs that we already have, but the pharmaceutical companies have got to watch their profit margins and they're in real trouble. And so we are subjected to this barrage of advertising Every day, just turn on the TV, any channel, and you'll get it all the time. You know, if you're depressed, but the, your, your antidepressant isn't working well enough, well, we've got an right. antipsychotic for you that'll help. I'm not mentioning that right. deliberately, but everybody, everybody can fill in the blanks. Yes. And it's all yes. crap. By the way, there was an article today in the Times about benzodiazepine huh? that they're now beginning to discover a very powerful correlation between people who take benzodiazepines, that's Valium, uh, Ativan, Xanax, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the emergence of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. This is one that, that and they even the, 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 the early data suggests if you took it once in a while, it's okay. But after you've taken it, particularly if you're older, for more than 180 days, the chances are really strong you're going to start to have dementia problems. Yeah, yeah. 
That's going to really yeah. upset them. I don't even know how they let that yeah. into the yeah. New York Times. Yeah. Well, nobody yeah. reads the New York Times. It's this liberal organization that, uh, you know, <laughs> well, it, <laughs> runs against the cuff. Yeah, well, read, reading is very rapidly going out of fashion. And, and uh, you know, people are using social media, so there's no really in-depth analysis. I mean, I, I, I mean, you and I, I know I'll speak for you for a moment, but, but you and I are appalled at even what we do in our own profession. I'll give you an example. and it, 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 It's slightly off the topic, but only slightly. It's there, okay. We have plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, okay. There, uh, mo- uh, most people, particularly men, but women too, who have, be- who have been in domestic relations courts, uh, in-, in divorce cases, and they're fighting for custody or visitation with their children, will be referred almost universally to psychologists uh, who will charge uh, – we have one in our town who charges $5,000 for a battery of tests. And here's the thing. None of those tests, well, first, they're all more than 50 years old for the most part. None of them were designed to answer the questions that the judge in the, in the uh, domestic relations court wants to answer. Who's a good parent? None of, none, of them, none of these tests have any predictive validity at all. They cannot predict who will make a good marriage, who will make a bad marriage, who will be a good father, who will be a bad mother, they cannot, they, who will be a homicidal maniac. They cannot, pre, they cannot predict anything to validity at all. And when you confront a psychologist, you'll say, well, this is all we have. Well, imagine what if, if you went to, say, an ophthalmologist, Larry, and you say, you know, I've got right. a pain in my eye. I've got a pain in my eye, and I would like you to, you know, check me out. And the guy says, uh, yeah, it doesn't look good. I can just make a crude look. It's not good. But I, I need for you to know that the apparatus and the equipment I have in my office is very, very much out of date. It's not really what you need. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, thank you very much. I'll go to somebody who has. Well, that, the psychologists don't have anything else, so they're making a very nice living using these tests that have absolutely no value at all. And I regard that as a gross breach of ethics, and I'm still waiting for somebody in the psychological establishment to put their foot down and say something about it. We, we, oh. we have a couple of books out. Yeah. Yeah. We hey, listen, you and I have say something about it. Uh, I don't know how many people will reach Nobody's called in yet, so I'm not sure that uh, how many people. Actually, what happens to my show, it gets archived after I hang up. And over the weeks and months, uh, fairly nice numbers of people come to it. And they download it uh, on their iTunes or they download it. They listen on the computer. Um, And you never know. You throw a stone in the water and the ripples go out. But certainly you and I uh, have referred to each other as the dinosaurs in the La Brea Tar Pits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, uh, yeah, because it's, it's the field, in order to earn a living, you need diagnoses. Every time, by the way, I say somebody I, I'm working with in a, in a nursing home, somebody whose uh, spouse is dead, friends are gone, uh, who's in diapers, <clears throat> who's uh, in terrible pain, and in order to greet this human being and meet this human being and talk to them um i have to write down major depressive disorder i want to puke yeah yeah but i'm not going to do this as a volunteer so i want the uh you know the the medicare pays uh like uh forty dollars for a session which is you know yeah my my auto mechanic makes much more than that, but that's okay. Yeah, I don't right. really need the money, and I love the work, but I wouldn't do it as a volunteer. Um, 
But every time I do that, this is a human being at the end of life who is suffering unbearably, not only physically, but socially. Um, uh-huh. Many of them will say to me, I want to die. There's no purpose for my life. I'm not really alive. Uh, I used to be a person, but I'm not a person anymore. Yeah. And yeah. what's amazing to me is I'll hold a hand and I'll look into somebody's face and talk to them. And they'll say, are you going to come back? Because you're the only person in this place who really hears me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly, exactly. They, they were products. That's all you need to do. Larry, that's the, actually, since, since you and I know, and maybe the person in front of you knows, that there's really nothing you can do. They're going to die within the next year or so. There's not a damn thing you can do, but just sitting there and listening to them and yes. looking into their eyes, and that can be tremendously helpful. You know, you and I know that when we did therapy, the relationship that was necessary for change was a vehicle for change. Now, what I find is that the relationship is not a vehicle for change. There's no change going to take place. Their diapers are going to be changed, particularly at night, by some hostile person who's making six or seven dollars an hour and would rather do anything in the world but be there and left yeah. them in their waist for two hours before they got to them. Nothing's going to change. But the very fact that they matter to somebody is what's important. So the relationship is its end product. <clears throat> and yeah, I find yeah, the same be- thing when I work with these vets. And, 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 you know, I live in this development now where we have a lot of ex-military people, all of whom own guns. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what fantasies they harbor, But the real meaning in their life came from the war. By the way, I wanted to recommend, uh, there were several books uh, over the years that I've read that are sort of anti-war, and they try to get rid of them as soon as they can. There's a book called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning by a guy named Chris Hedges. Very powerful Uh book in which he argues that one of the reasons we have war and we keep having war is that for a large number of people, this is the meaning in their life. Well, we, and those yeah, of we're them, a bellicose species. I think, yeah, I think okay. we're a bellicose species, yeah. Yes. Um, in any event, it's a very powerful book. And so these vets, we have all kinds of wonderful things they do, uh, flagpoles at the cemeteries, and, but no one raises an issue. I don't question calling these guys heroes. I have no problem with it. They did their duty. They can be proud of it. But nobody questions why they're sent in the first place. And nobody dares question their own emotions or the emotions of these other soldiers that what we ask them to do, that they killed, that they saw killing, that horrible, horrible events took place, and it transformed them. Nobody yeah. wants yeah. to hear. Yeah. Put another yeah. John Wayne movie on, yeah. you know, and yeah. and and yeah, and let's get ready for yeah. the next war. Well, no, I, to, to add to what you're saying with regard to the relationship, uh, there 
there's a, a fair amount of, uh, of data available to show, and our psychologists don't like to hear this because we all tend to identify ourselves with the technique that we use. We're, we're right. psychoanalytic, we're behavior modification, or blah, blah, blah. The, the, the data suggests that, that all, uh, just about 50%, maybe a slight, slightly less than 50%, uh, but there's certainly the plurality of the effectiveness of therapy is the relationship between the client and the, and the therapist. It's the, the quality of the relationship. The techniques are almost... Between one human being and another never, human. Yeah. That's yeah. all. Yeah. It's the, two the human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very salutary and it's very helpful. And, and uh, this particular study I'm thinking of uh, said maybe 15%. 15% of the effectiveness is due to the specific technique employed. Right. Whatever, whatever technique, it doesn't matter. All right. Uh, goodness. You know what? We've done the what? topic. I, I, you know, I gave us an hour and a half, but I don't think we need an hour and a half. Uh, how'd you like to come out here this winter to Florida? Well, I have a really, uh, I have a... I, you know, I've got invitations from all of my kids now. And uh, uh, to go, uh, I, well, I might as well tell the uh, radio audience, I, I lost my wife recently, and so... My kids have been absolutely marvelous and supportive and caring and nurturing. And uh, go, but you learn a lot about yourself in a situation like that. And one of the things I've learned is it's not so much that you can't predict the future. We, we all more or less, we, we, we do it, we try to do it despite, in spite of ourselves. And we make long-range plans and blah, blah, blah. Right. But, but the other thing that I found out is you can't even predict even if I could say to you, look, this is absolutely going to happen. And you could say, well, if that happens, I know I'm going to feel this way or I'm not going to feel that way. No, you don't know that either. I'm amazed at the things that I thought I would have trouble with, I don't have trouble with at all. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. you can't even predict You can't even predict how you're going to feel about things, even if you could predict what's going to happen. Right, right, right. Yeah. But anyway... If it's you got a cold winter and you want to come here for some time, I have a uh, a nice room in the house. It's a separate wing, kind of, with its own okay. bathroom and shower. All right. Um, do you okay. do you play golf at all? No, no, no. I was a racquetball player in my time. Uh, you can't come uh, to Florida then. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you mean if you come to Florida, or? you have to play golf. I can. I, I, literally, I, I fall. I, I'm I addicted can, yeah. to it. You are? No, I'm addicted oh, okay. to it. I love golf now like I used to love sex. <laughs> how, uh, how are your knees, by the way? You had trouble with your knees, didn't you? I had them replaced. Yeah, and are they okay? It's, actually, it's five years. It's October 19th will be five years. He put in two devices, and uh, I can walk four miles twice a week, and I ride by bike, and I play golf two or three times. I gave up tennis, which I love very much. Because I was afraid of falling. Uh -huh. they, they, you know, I would have to run forward or run backwards. You really have to do kind of movements. And a lot of the guys that I, you know, down here, I don't think should be playing. They're injured all the time. But if I fall on these devices and they crack, uh, I, I would have a real bad time. But they're holding yeah, up yeah. apparently yeah. beautifully. Yeah. have no real yeah. pain. Uh, and uh, a, a miracle of medical science. I, I'm a bionic yeah. man. Yeah, well, uh, 
uh, like I said to my son who is in the was in the motorcycle accident, I, I said, you know, uh, we are seeing American medicine at its best. I said, we're, we're, since I work with psychiatry, I'm, I'm, I've certainly seen it at its worst. But well, first of all, of, you and I, psychiatry is not medicine. Well, fair enough. It's not medicine. They are the secular priests of our society who define acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And if, in fact, and we've had this conversation before, if schizophrenia or post-traumatic stress disorder or any of these were defined medically, psychiatrists wouldn't see the individual. Neurologists would see the individual. Exactly. Um, exactly. Real doctors would see the individual. Uh, yeah, or, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, somebody would see them who deals with biochemistry. It wouldn't be psychiatrists. And certainly yeah. you and I would be out of a job. You and I can't, uh, you know, uh, work with uh, somebody having yeah. It's real medicine. It's not medicine. Yeah, yeah. It's an well, incredible waste yeah. of medical education. Yeah. I've got to gotta put in a plug for our, our late uh, uh, guru, uh, uh, Tom Sass. I reread the manufacturer of madness recently and i want to i want to recommend it to everybody who's listening to this program the manufacturer of madness demonstrates tom sass's genius in, in terms of connecting the dots where you didn't realize there were dots let alone connections it, it right. without a doubt without a doubt his best work i mean you i you think I, it's better than the myth of mandolin yeah absolutely the insights the insights in that book are earth-shaking. I mean, my jaw drops all the time. Oh, my God. You know, okay, when I hang up, I'm going to download it into my iPad, and I'm going to read it. Oh, it's, I don't it's, think – I'm not sure I read it great. ever, but if oh, I didn't, I'll reread it. Oh, I know you have, yeah. But I, yeah. I read his work. I read his work from the later ones to the earlier ones. That's why it took me so long to get around to it, because I read, you know, Coercion is Cure and Anti-Psychiatry, Quackery Squared, and the, the Virginia Woolf book and all of those others, you know. That was a wonderful Insanity, one. yeah, Insanity. In fact, I told Tom, I said, you know, Tom, when people say, uh, when people say, well, I'll, I'll go it. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll read one of Tom Sass's books. I, I give him, uh, I say, read, read the one on Virginia Woolf, but I don't say that anymore. Uh, now it's read the Manufacturer of Madness. It's, okay. it's fabulous. Yeah. Okay. Listen, it's time yeah. for my dessert. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm going to have some ice cream. And uh, listen, uh, it was a pleasure doing this with you, as it always is. Same year. And I, I really wish we could get together. And we no, only no, live, no. what, 2,500 miles apart? No, yeah, yeah, so. yeah 2,500. It's a long drive. No, I'm not driving. <laughs> but no, I, yeah, I don't I'm drive to New kids. York any longer. My kids are up there. Yeah. I fly. And I, how yeah. I hate that yeah. flying. You know, yeah. It's, oh, it's yeah. just yeah. awful. <laughs> awful. Yeah. But, but anyway. no, I will take your invitation seriously. I really will. Seriously, because I really mean it. You come out uh, if it's cold. And it, last summer, last winter, this summer we're, we're dying right now. It's, we're underwater. Uh, it's a constant fog and rain with heavy wow. showers. In a half an hour, we'll drop two inches of rain. Oh my and God, the upside man. is that there have been no hurricanes anywhere. 
the the the, the you know because we watch one eye yeah, constantly yeah, yeah. watching the the, the the you know the uh, stuff going on in the Caribbean and the waves yes, coming yes. off Africa. So far, it's been fabulous. But we are, I mean, the the, the golf courses are full of mold and 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 oh, mushrooms yeah, and yeah, oh, it's yeah, awful. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. Uh, but last winter was the warmest winter on record. It was like six months of beautiful May weather. Uh, nice, nice. It was just like heaven. It was yeah. heaven. Yeah. It was fabulous. Yeah. So you have a you have a standing invitation. Okay. And uh, good luck. And I hope we could talk again soon. We will. We will. Okay. Right. Take care, Lou. Yeah. Okay. Good night. Yeah. Bye bye. Good night. Bye. Okay. I think I'll end the show now. Where is it? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.